Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletop from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Princeton, New Jersey is Jeff Kaplan. Jeff is a partner in the law firm Kaplan & Walker, which is known for its work with compliance programs. Uh, Jeff, first, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Adam, thanks uh, much for, to you and your colleagues at SCCE for having me. Oh, our Thank pleasure. You. So today we're going to be talking about the sentencing guidelines, and it's been 30 years since the guidelines were born. Um, you've been a part of compliance that whole and ethics that whole ride. Um, do you think we're there yet, Jeff, or have we, to borrow from the song, only just begun? Uh, uh, well, I think we're uh, only just getting started. Uh, that's not to say that any one company is just getting started, because there were a few that were around when the guidelines went into effect in 91. Uh, but there are many that are uh, just getting started uh, and have done very little with C&E, and there's a definite need for them. Uh, but I do think it's important to keep a historical perspective on this, because when back in 1991 the guidelines went into effect, I think those of us who were involved, Joe Murphy and others, um, would never have predicted that it would have gotten as far as it has done over the last 30 years. So fair to view the cup as more full than empty, uh, and hopefully getting fuller every day. Hopefully, and I, I got to say, I've been a part of this for 20 or so years now, and you know, it's amazing to see the growth. And you know, when I started, there was a big debate of whether or not you could do compliance and ethics training on a mandatory basis or not. And that's, you know, long since become right. the norm, for example. Now, what are yeah. some of the challenges that you feel still remain? Well, the overarching one, which would have been the challenge at any time over the last 30 years, is to get senior managers to treat compliance and ethics as a real business priority, meaning going about it with the same degree of resolve and results-orientedness that one would R&D or marketing, sales, et cetera. Um, and obviously that's one place among many where having strong support from the board makes a difference. Um, another challenge is somewhat related to the first one we just discussed is what might be called the mission accomplished uh, phenomenon. And that is there definitely is a tendency in some organizations to view uh, compliance and ethics as an event rather than an ongoing commitment and process. Uh, I refer to this in a uh, a blog post recently as the problem of the middle-aged compliance program. And there's no one tactic to handle this, but it's a general matter. One must find ways to maintain a, a sense of urgency, if you will, uh, to a program. Yeah, which is difficult because one of the problems is, uh, you know, if the program's working well, uh, there doesn't seem to be incidents and you don't have that sense of urgency of, you know, oh my goodness, what's going on? We really need to invest more when in fact, you know, that the investment you're making is what's preventing things and hopefully, you know, we'll continue to do, but you never know what's around the corner. Now, well, you and I are both a fan of behavioral ethics. The whole field, I think, is really enlightening since it really looks at the way yeah. humans act. And, and, and we think it needs to, we both, I think, agree that it needs to be incorporated more into compliance and ethics programs. First, for those who are less familiar with it, can you describe what it is? Yeah, it's an extremely interesting area, as you and I have discussed numerous times over the last few years. Uh, and I think a potentially very productive one um, is basically behavioral ethics 
is part of a broader field of behavioral science. Uh, and the behavioral ethics part shows how due to, uh, I guess you call them cognitive biases, certain cognitive biases, we are not as ethical as we think we are. And lots of studies over the decades uh, have shown that. Uh, and we won't go over the studies today, it would take too much time. But the conflict of interest blog, uh, which is URL is what I just said, uh, does have write-ups of a number of those studies. But that going back to the big picture, if we can't rely on our ethical instincts, and that's what behavioral ethics suggests, then we are less likely to be complacent about the need for strong compliance and ethics. And you, know, you picked up on the word urgency that I like to think of this as relating to. And I think for some, behavioral ethics uh, can be what it takes to make compliance and ethics urgent again. I, I find the whole field fascinating, you know, through experiments, they've illuminated how, for example, if people are in a rush, they're less likely to do the right thing um, right. or have shown that if there's others around, we tend to wait to see what they do versus act. And to the extent that we understand what those factors are and can start designing programs where we try and give the right cues to people to do the right thing and eliminate those which suggest doing the wrong thing, the better we are because, you know, this really is about human behavior and what people do day in and day out in their job when faced with difficult decisions. Now, how would you advocate better incorporating behavioral ethics into compliance programs? Yeah, so there are different ways. Uh, probably the main vehicle for uh, importing, I guess you could say, behavioral ethics into compliance and ethics programs is through training and communication. Um, well, for example, I know of one company where the compliance and ethics, the chief compliance and ethics officer made a video for the whole workforce explaining, explaining behavioral ethics and why it's important to preventing wrongdoing. Uh, certainly, it can be it, I mean, behavioral ethics can be used in rewriting or rewriting the manager's duty in the section of a code. I would say the other area or way in which um, behavioral ethics can be sort of imported into a company's compliance program is through risk assessment. And so, for example, what you just described about you know the pressure and rush and how what that could mean to um, a compliance program. Uh, that's something that should be, I think, factored into behavioral ethics, I mean, to risk assessment. It's not the only part of risk assessment, but it can be useful, and particularly the study uh, that, that you alluded to, um, which actually goes back to the 19, early 1970s, shows that being rushed can have an incredibly powerful effect on one's ethicality. And so that's a good thing, and there are others, to factor into your risk assessment. Uh, and there are others as well, obviously. Yeah, well, given all the research into how people under stress tend to make bad decisions, just period, not just ethical ones, I, I, I've long thought that risk assessment should add a layer of which is the most stressed parts of the organization or individuals, yeah. and just assume you need to be focusing a bit more there. Now, how else do you see compliance evolving over the next few years? I mean, you've seen a tremendous evolution of compliance and ethics programs over the last three decades. What do you think is going to be coming next? Yeah, I, I sort of hesitate to take out my crystal ball since uh, I didn't see, uh, I guess I partly saw, but I was still surprised by how powerful uh, compliance and ethics has become. Um, but I think there are a couple of very ways in which I think we may see programs, not all of them, but some of them uh, trend and be shaped by. 
Uh, one is what I consider to be nano compliance, which sounds like a $3 term, and maybe it is, but it means compliance efforts aimed at monitoring communications much more in a risk-based way, and so focused on sort of small groups and small units in a company, um, and you're able to get a lot more power into the uh, program that way uh, in you know focusing on sort of smaller uh, units. And I also think more will be done with incentives. Uh, I think we've only just gotten started there. Incentives needn't mean uh, giving cash for ethics, uh, but can be ways using recognition and actually tying into some of the behavioral ethics um, uh, research that we both alluded to. I think that's an area that will inevitably, I mean, we're seeing more every day, but I think we'll see much more. Uh, and then finally, um, I think more will be done with data, uh, and that's a tricky area. I think that you know, some people, the challenge is obviously to do more than they're doing, but there's some people who I think are struggling with this because there's a lot of bad medicine uh, out there, uh, data that doesn't really do what it needs to do and yet could suck up a lot of uh, attention and time and resources. So I guess that's a, rec uh, a prediction, um, but um, we'll just have to see. So now, speaking of data, I, I, I've been reading a book called Real World AI uh, about artificial mm. intelligence by Alyssa Simpson Rockwerger and Wilson Pang. Uh, Alyssa is going to be speaking at the HCCA annual meeting. You know, when it comes to artificial intelligence, companies are all gung ho for it. It does have a lot of potential. But one of the things she addresses is the fact that AI tends to be very racist and sexist, um, that there's all mm -hmm. kinds of biases that end up emerging um, in it, even when efforts are made to avoid it. So she cites the example of Apple's credit card, where uh, pretty soon the AI was giving much, much, much higher credit limits to men than to women, even though they never asked gender in the application uh, for the credit mm. card. So what do you think, you know, how do you think compliance people and ethics people need to start getting involved in this and what should they be thinking about? I mean, it seems to me it, it's a burgeoning area with one that holds tremendous risk that we're not fully aware of yet. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, it's a fascinating area. I'm not uh, really engaged in it uh, personally, but I do think that there needs to be risk assessments in effect for AI. Uh, and I don't know that it, I mean, it's sort of thought of that way, but probably not as systematically as it should be. And I guess that would be the one recommendation I would make. But it, yeah, you know, it's the power of, of AI is phenomenal and it is exciting, but uh, those are the things which make it risk, you know, burdened uh, on the other hand. So uh, you got to, you can't make wish it away, but obviously we'll go when it goes into this with uh, risk eyes wide open. You know, it simply seems that we are gonna have to keep our eyes open to this. And uh, like a lot of new technologies, understand fully how they work. I mean, you know, frankly, I, I'm old enough to remember when there was a fight of whether or not business people should be allowed to have computers on their desk or not. So yeah. uh, that's uh, dating myself. Anyway, well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and sharing these insights. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletop from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective. <laughs>